I'll invite you this morning to turn with me in God's Word to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. We'll read God's Word this morning under the heading of Why We Need the Gospel. Why We Need the Gospel. Beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things which have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those, who, for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. My most dear friends, the Apostle Paul is writing the book of Romans as we saw last week to present to the Roman church the Gospel of Jesus Christ as he plans for his eventual visit to the church on his way to the Spanish mission field. Remember the famous words of the Apostle Paul in verses 16 and 17, the Gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes, for in it, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul says the main point of the book of Romans, his whole thesis is the Gospel. Euangelion, the good news in Jesus Christ. And you say, well then, what did we just read in Romans 1, 18-32? through 
Surely Paul saying, the wrath of God revealed is not good news. And you're right. God's wrath isn't good news. But God's wrath shows us why we need the good news. You see, this morning we come to the first section of the book of Romans, which begins in chapter 1, verse 18, and will continue on all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And this section of the book of Romans is concerned with the universality of sins. That we're all sinners. And as we read in verse 32, all are worthy of condemnation. And we know this. You know this before you even read the book of Romans. You don't need to be a theologian to recognize that there's something wrong with the world in which we live. Whether you're a Democrat or whether you're a Republican, we're all complaining about how bad this world is. I imagine you, like me, have watched the news, or if you're under 30, got an update on your phone and mumbled under your breath, what is this world coming to? Whether it's the ongoing war in Ukraine, or something closer to home, whether it was the shooting that happened at Michigan State University, or something as simple as the number one song in the United States celebrating unholy adultery. What is this world coming to? Every single one of us knows that this world is broken and sin is an overwhelming reality. But when the Apostle Paul looks at the subject of sin, notice that he doesn't say it's us versus them. It's not that we're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys, but he says this is true also in us. We who are here this morning, look at with me Romans 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 There is none righteous. No, not one. This isn't the good news. This is bad news. This is the worst of news. You, me, Everyone, save Jesus Christ, is a sinner. And so if this book is really about the Gospel, what do we do with Romans 1.18 to chapter 3, verse 20? What does the bad news have to do with the good news? I like what Joel Beakey says. He says the first Doctrine involved in the call of the Gospel. The first part of the call to the good news is the doctrine of man's sin. That God reveals our sins to show us that righteousness isn't in ourselves. The power of God isn't in me. It isn't in you. 
It's not in the Democratic Party. It's not in the Republican Party. The power of God that can change the hearts of men and change this world is in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So our theme this morning is that Paul reveals the extent of our sinfulness to show us the depth of God's love. Paul reveals the extent of our sinfulness to show us the depths of God's love. We want to see this in three points. We suppress the truth. We embrace sin. And we deserve judgment. But these things are met and resolved in Christ. We suppress the truth. We embrace sin. We deserve judgment. If you were here with us last week, you notice immediately the change in tone between verses 16 and 17 and verse 18. In verse 16 and 17, this is what we might call the mountaintop or the thesis, the main point of the Apostle Paul, and it doesn't get better than this. He introduces us to the revelation of God's righteousness. But no sooner does he mention the revelation of righteousness in verse 17, does he mention the revelation of God's wrath in verse 18. Last week we said, if God reveals His righteousness, it also reveals something of His character. If He is righteous, it means He is also loving. If He is righteous, it means He's also merciful. He is long-suffering. He is full of grace. But the inverse is true as well. The revelation of God's wrath tells us something about the character of God. It shows us his anger. In fact, the Greek word here for wrath refers to unbridled, unrestrained anger. Sometimes we throw around the word wrath, but wrath really means this it's the revulsion of God's being against that which contradicts his holiness. It's when we choose things that aren't God and He reacts in His wrath. So I ask the question to you this morning, who is worthy of receiving the unbridled, unrestrained anger of God? See, it's likely Paul is speaking to the Gentiles in the Roman church here in this first chapter. And then he'll speak to the Jews in Romans chapter 2. But Paul's target is clearly all people. Look with me again at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Flip with me to chapter 2 verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek. 3 verse 9, for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. 3.19, for we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth be stopped, the whole world be held accountable to God. Let us not be misunderstood this morning. The wrath of God is not reserved just for Hitler. Hitler. Or African warlords. Or pimps. God is angry, as the catechism says, 
with even our sins. And there's one sin that the Apostle Paul points out here. He mentions ungodliness and unrighteousness, but these are very general terms. It doesn't refer to anything specific. That point to the one sin he's concerned with. Look what he says in verse 18. All people suppress the truth. The single sin that provokes God's anger is holding down, that's what suppress means, or limiting God's truth. And you might say, well, pastor, not everybody knows God's truth. How can everybody be guilty of suppressing the truth if they don't have the Bible? It's interesting that our Belgic Confession, which is one of the, for those of you who are guests and visitors, one of our creeds of our church, which summarizes the teaching of the Bible. The Belgic Confession says there's actually two ways in which God is revealed. The first way, it says, is by creation. The preservation and government of the universe, since that universe, listen to the Belgic Confession, is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters that make us ponder the invisible things of God, His eternal power, and His divinity. Look what Paul says in verse 19. Everyone knows God. Paul says God is actually plain. He has shown it to them. What has He shown them? Look at, uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me just back to Acts 14, a few pages uh, back. Acts 14, verses 15 and 17. Paul says, uh, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring to you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who has made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. In past generations, He allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet He did not leave Himself without witness. For He did good by giving you, look at this, rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul says this created world is actually a witness that testifies to who God is. For His invisible attributes, verse 20, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Let's put it another way. Didn't we just sing Psalm 19? The heavens declare Thy glory. The firmament thy power. From day unto day the story repeats from hour to hour. Night unto night replying proclaims in every land, O Lord, with voice undying, the wonders of thy hand. The Bible teaches, you know that beautiful sunset? That, shows you, that is supposed to show you the greatness of his might. That when the sun rises, we are reminded that He is good. And when it sets, we are reminded that He is faithful. 
when you are awestruck by the mountain that seems to just rise up out of the earth, Psalm 65 says, glorify God for his strength. When he brings forth the produce of the earth, Psalm 104, we are to thank God for his provision. When he feeds the birds of the air and clothes the grass of the fields with grass, we are to see that God cares for his creation. He makes the sun rise. He sends the rain. And when you hold that little baby in your hands, and everything about them is perfect, and you didn't do anything to put that baby together in its mother's womb, you, he testifies again of his image in the world. God is testifying to you and I every hour of every day. He is the God who is there. He is real. He is present in our lives and that we, His creation, should glorify Him. But the effect of sin, Paul says in Romans 1, verse 21, is that we suppress it. We don't give honor to Him or thanks to Him. We push it down. And instead, we worship the creation instead of worshiping the Creator. We'll look at that in just a few more moments. But what do you see the Apostle Paul's point here in these first five verses? Man in his own power doesn't even get close to salvation. In fact, what man does when it's left in our own hands is we suppress the truth. A word of application, what we call this first book that God has given unto us that He testifies of Himself. We call this general revelation. It's the revelation of God to all people. But notice what it doesn't reveal. It reveals that there is power in God. It reveals that there is a God, but it doesn't reveal the name of God. It doesn't tell us of the cross of Jesus Christ. And his salvation. This is why, as we already saw this morning, baptism is so important. We need the gospel applied to our lives. And in that baptism is not the Trinitarian name used Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need the gospel from the beginning. We cannot be satisfied with general revelation alone. Because general revelation doesn't contain the name of God, it doesn't mean that because people discern that there is a God, that we aren't called to share the gospel. We are still called to go to the ends of the earth with the second book, special revelation, and tell people of the salvation that is manifest in Christ. But Paul isn't done with us yet. In verses 24 and 32, we come to one of the grimmest passages in the Bible. Paul has shown us that all humanity has universally suppressed the knowledge of God. We have refused to honor God. We have refused to be grateful to God. R.C. Sproul calls these verses the dreadful exchange. Where fallen humanity trades God. Trades His beauty 
His gospel, His attributes for sin. Sometimes I hear Christians say, and non-Christians for that matter, when a tragedy takes place, where is God? When there's evil in this world, does He not know? Does He not care? But Paul tells us three times, God is intimately involved and knows about what's going on in this world. Look at verse 24. It says God gave them up. Look at verse 26. God gave them up. Verse 28. God gave them up. He is not surprised that this world is sinful. This world has rejected Him, embraced sin, so He gives them what they want. That's what giving them up means. He gives men, mankind, to its sinful impulses. And in essence says, if you want to sin, go ahead. Sin. See what will happen to you. There's a famous example of this actually in the Old Testament. You remember when Israel in 1 Samuel looked to the other nations with a king And they said, we want a king like the other nations. And God doesn't get in the way and try to stop them, does He? If you want a king, you can have a king. But there are great repercussions to sin. Theologically, we call this judicial abandonment. Like when a judge sees somebody in their sin and fallenness and gives them the sentence they deserve. Allow me to illustrate this with the very sorrowful example this morning. In our Reformed churches, judicial abandonment is actually practiced. We do this, and what we call it is excommunication. When somebody is put under church discipline and excommunicated, we give them to their sins. Now I ask you a question this morning. For what sin can somebody be excommunicated? How does somebody get there? Does it have to be a really bad sin? Do we excommunicate murderers? We talked about Hitler, warlords, and pimps. Are those people being excommunicated? See, one thing that's quite profound for us is there's actually only one sin for which somebody can be excommunicated. Impenitence. Impenitence. Refusing to repent and turn to Christ. So when somebody is excommunicated, we're saying we give them up to their sins. And the kingdom of heaven is closed. They have chosen sin and rejected God. R.C. Sproul says it well again. He says, to be excommunicated from the body of Christ is the only thing worse than being sent to hell. 
because you knew better. You knew who Christ was and you spurned him. What is God saying in Romans 8, 24, 26, and 28? That he is excommunicating the whole world. The kingdom of heaven is closed to all of us. Everyone. Because they have rejected him. They have chosen their sins, their idolatry, over him. Judicial abandonment is the consequence for our rejection of God. And notice, he punctuates that argument with examples, doesn't he? Of sin. He shows us how God's wrath is revealed in the present. He says God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up, but to what? They're given up to sin. And the sin is not very freeing. It actually binds them. C.S. Lewis said, they enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. We become enslaved to the very thing we thought would set us free. And he gives us three examples. Follow them with me if you can. Beginning in verse 24, he mentions the lust of our hearts. Literally, this means over-desire. This is an all-controlling, all-longing within us. And it doesn't actually refer to just bad things. But even an over-desire for good things. Turning good things into our gods, we make objects of our worship and service. Take for this for an example. Think of a man who worships his career. A man who dutifully serves it. Because through his career, he thinks he can become a somebody. His whole life is devoted to his career. Everything else must fit around his career. What giving him over looks like would be him getting a promotion. It's the worst thing that could have done. Because it allows him to continue to think that he can find blessing through the lust of his heart. And it enables him to forget the wreckage he makes of his marriage, his friends, and his family. In service to his God. When Paul says the lust of his hearts, it means taking God off of the throne of our hearts and putting something else there and serving it. Second, Paul mentions dishonorable passions, which refers to sexual sins, and specifically he speaks of homosexuality in these verses. Now, I know that uh, we, our service is a little longer here, but I don't think we should rush past this. This is the longest passage in the Bible devoted just to homosexuality. And it's also the most controversial. You see, many have suggested that when Paul refers to homosexual relationships as contrary to nature, that it only refers to promiscuous homosexual relationships. Not loving, long-term, consensual, marital homosexual relationships. How do we respond to those accusations? Well, it's interesting that in the Greek, when Paul says contrary to nature, he literally is saying against 
nature. And there's nothing to suggest that he only had certain homosexual relationships in mind. This means then that homosexuality, according to the Apostle Paul at least, is a violation of the natural created world. Here is his point. He uses lesbian and homosexual relationships as an example of God giving people over to something unnatural. Let's be clear this morning. The Bible in both the Old and the New Testament says, unrepented of homosexual sex is a rejection of Jesus' Lordship. And it leaves people outside the kingdom of God. You cannot be a homosexual, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and inherit the kingdom of heaven. But that doesn't mean that homosexual people are outside of his reach. This morning, if you are struggling with homosexual or lesbian desires, Paul says, do not buy into the lie of the LGBTQ community that that is how you were made. You were not made that way. It is an unnatural perversion. The Bible clearly says that it is a sin, but it's not an unforgivable sin. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. In the Corinthian church, there was likely people there who struggled with homosexual and lesbian desires. People who struggled not acting out in their physical passions in this way. But he says, there is forgiveness in Christ. There is fulfillment in Christ. Fulfillment even better than a husband or a wife can give you. It is a sin. But it's not an unforgivable sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul says, God gives man over to all manner of unrighteousness in verses 28 and 31. This is what we've traditionally called total depravity, that we're all sinners, as it says in verse 28. There is greed and economic disorder in verse 29. Social disorder, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, verse 29. Family breakdown, verse 30. Relational breakdown between God and neighbor, 30 and 31. As we read through these lists, is there anyone among us who is not found guilty? Anyone among us who hasn't sinned in the last day? This morning? It's our. Paul says there's nothing that we do that is untouched by sins. And so quickly we move to verse 32 where he says we deserve punishment. The final nail in the coffin is verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. 
They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Paul is saying that every single one of us in this room this morning knows we have suppressed God. You know that we have embraced sin. And our very consciences testify that we are worthy of punishment. Fun sermon this morning, right? Come see the new preacher. Beloved, do you see the extent of your sin? Yes, we are all guilty. Yes, we have embraced sin. Yes, we do deserve judgment. But why is Paul saying this? He shows us our sin to teach us that salvation is to be sought by no other means than the Gospel. The Gospel shines brightest amidst the darkness of night. Cheer up, my friends. The Gospel is this. We are more sinful and more flawed in ourselves than we would ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. The fullness of His pardon is the greatest evidence of the fullness of His love. He looked upon not just a sliver of our sinfulness or half of it, Christ looked upon the whole of our, of our sin. And He still chose you. And He still died for you. So that He could give us, flip back to Romans 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God by faith. So that you might have salvation, have forgiveness, live in freedom. True freedom. And in light of your sins, that's what makes the Gospel sweet. We would beat our breasts like the publican in Luke. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And so in conclusion this morning, Yes, you and I have suppressed the truth. Yes, we have embraced sin. Yes, we do deserve punishment. But even the extent of our sinfulness was not a hindrance to the love of Christ. As Paul says in Romans 8, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all, will He not graciously give us all things? Yes, the answer is yes. He will give you all things. He will take it all away. Why? Because of the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or sin? Yes, the wrath of God is revealed. But here He also reveals His righteousness. A righteousness that's given to sinners such as us. Have you embraced this righteousness today? Have you trusted in Christ? Today is the day. Look at your sin. See it for what it is. 
Hear the verdict of God, excommunicated. But then hear the gospel proclamation. Christ died to forgive sinners like you and like me. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for your word, which is always good and always true. Even when you do your work upon our hearts and show us the extent of our sinfulness. But oh, the depth of the deep, deep love of God, who for sinners such as us sent his son to the cross, who embraced our sin. He embraced our judgment and proclaims us pure and loved in him. We ask, merciful God, that you would give us the grace to believe it. In Christ's name, amen.